This month's Where Did the Road Go is brought to you by six amazing people. Allison Cook, Super Inframan, Bart Ooms, Billuminati, 36 Dingo, and Michael Fritzke. If you want to become a patron, www.wheredidtheroadgo.com. And now our show. Transmission start. Welcome to Where Did the Road Go? Join us as we wander off the path and explore lost history, consciousness, the paranormal, unexplained mysteries, alternative thought, and much more. We are present on the web at wheredidtheroadgo.com. Now here is your host, Soraya. Welcome to this edition of Where Did the Road Go? And I am here with AP Strange. Hello. And Anthony Tyler. How's it going, everybody? And you've been on the show a bunch of times, Anthony. Yes, I have. Thank you for having me back on. It's always a pleasure, man. And uh, this is kind of a swap cast with your podcast, which is called what? Uh, Black Hoodie Alchemy. All right. Um, yeah, yeah. You can uh, check it out anywhere you stream your action. Um, it's uh, alchemy and uh, lots of dark subject matter, you know, for, for good philosophical purposes. But yeah, that's pretty much it in a nutshell. There's, there's lots nice. going on. Um, so this, this came about because apparently Anthony, you would want to do a show with AP about this. And, uh, one of my listeners, uh, Michael Friske, I hope I'm saying that right, has sent me just a ton of books I had on my Amazon wish list. He's been absolutely amazing about this. And one of the books he sent me was the Goblin Universe, which I've always wanted to read by Ted Holliday and technically a little by Colin Wilson. And uh, I said to, you know, I said to my Slack group, I'm like, hey, anyone know this book? And AP was like, oh, yeah, I'm supposed to do a show on that book. So now we're all going to do it together. <laughs> so I um, mentioned this book when we talked about um, Alien Animals, the Janet and Colin Board book. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Although I don't know if that was in the actual episode. I think that might have just been the Patreon. But um, but yeah, we had uh, super infrared and I had a side conversation about this one. So. so the interesting thing about this is that the introduction is a third of the book. <laughs> yeah. It is literally 46 pages out of a 200, roughly 200 page book. So I guess a fourth, it's a fourth of the book. And the story seems to be that Ted holiday wrote this in sometime in the seventies. I can't find an exact date when he wrote it. Um, and he passed away in 1979 and he, he sent this to Colin and Colin loved it. And then Ted decided he didn't like it. He wasn't going to publish it. And he just kind of left it. And when uh, Ted passed away, Colin asked his wife, hey, I still have this manuscript. Can I put it out? And uh, Ted's wife said yes. And it's a, it's a book way ahead of its time, honestly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd say that's fair. And uh, so what I did is I grabbed, I, I, in, in the spirit of the Brothers of the Serpent podcast, uh, we're not going to read the whole book, obviously, but uh, I, I took paragraphs out of it so I can read a paragraph and we can discuss it because there's a lot of really interesting stuff in here. But I kind of broke it down to the stuff Colin was talking about and then the stuff Ted was talking about. So the first part here is all stuff from Colin's introduction. He says that uh, Holiday was also moving toward the view that both dragons and flying saucers may be symbols or perhaps a better word would be signals. That is to say that their purpose may be to remind human beings that reality is altogether stranger and more complex than they think. The question of precisely who is making the signals is left open, but in the 12th chapter of The Dragon and the Disc, which is one of Ted's earlier books, he admits that by 1970 I had rejected the superficial view of monster phenomena, that they are just unknown animals that have somehow escaped the science net as inadequate. 
And he goes on to cite references in Celtic literature to the idea that the serpent is an apparition or phantom. And he goes on to suggest that in the ancient world, the disc may have been worshipped in many places while the dragon was worshipped by other groups. Such groups would today be called Satanists. He points out that the Irish churches seem to lack the serpent designs found in so many English churches and suggests that perhaps this is what is meant by the legend of St. Patrick banished the serpents from Ireland, that he destroyed the ancient religion of dragon worship. Yeah, that's uh, it's it's wild stuff. I I like where his brain goes. Um, and th- like I don't, you know, I can't say I've uh parsed through all the the data on you know like Celtic mythology and things like that. Um, but it. And I, I feel like with Ted Holliday, I think it's kind of a recurring theme in um, just in like 4T and literature in general. Um, and I, I, you know, I think that's part of why I enjoy it is, you know, there's what you might call like, a, I think it would be like a pareidolia at times where you're like finding patterns in random things. But that that, that doesn't necessarily uh, it's not meant to be derogatory or even discouraging. Like, I think um, in some ways that's the uh, the you know, the investigative quality. And like, it's, it's all throughout this book. Like, uh, you know, he, uh, he, he talks about like he, he brings up some really fascinating uh, bits and pieces, and then he'll do stuff like um, try and disprove like basic adaptation and evolution, which just yeah. doesn't really stand up all that well. So, like, I uh, yeah, I think that uh, you know, again, I don't, I'm not an expert on Celtic mythology, but it, it seems like really great food for thought, and uh, um, it's a really good representation of like where his brain goes with the research, and it's very like John Keelian. Jacques Vallée, it's of that same ilk, most certainly. It seems like, yeah, yeah. you mentioned the, the evolution thing. He, he devotes an entire chapter how evolution does seem to work, but it doesn't explain species. And then he goes on to a whole other theory, which I'm not sure if that's been debunked or not, but it, I mean, he's not wrong. I mean, we, we see evolution in certain ways, but we, we still don't see like new species, entirely new species popping into existence. Yeah, it, exactly. I mean, it's uh, it's he raises interesting points, and uh, there's there's stuff to chew on. But um, I think a lot of times, like you know, just to kind of expand on the subject matter, and uh, j- another example of where I really like his train of thought, and I don't necessarily agree with it, was where he basically makes the supposition that uh, the like serial killer that used to uh, fight alongside Joan of Arc, uh, Gilles de Ray, mm. was reincarnated as the uh, Jersey monster Edward Paisnell. Yeah, um, yeah. Very interesting story. I'd like to hear your guys' thoughts on that more. Well, but, I was uh, curious what you thought about that, too, because it kind of reminded me of some of the stuff you wrote in the, uh, uh, was it the Dive Manual? You, you uh, got a little bit about serial killers in one of your books. Yeah, Hunt Manual, um, the oh, second yeah. one. Yeah, um, and um, yeah, it, I'll, I'll say this, um, just as like a one-time organic plug, like you can go check out my book, Hunt Manual, because um, um, I it's I was writing it, you know, I finished like the rough draft and as I was whittling it more and more and sculpting it out, um, I came across the Goblin universe and it's such a difficult book to find. You guys, it's pretty badass that it puts a genuine smile on my face that you got physical copies. I'm just happy to have a PDF, uh, which AP Strange was kind enough to gift me um, after I told him. I was like, so I, I wrote this book. I put out Hunt Manual and I talk about the Goblin universe a little bit um, because I, 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 I scoured and read as much as I could about the commentary on it, but I really couldn't find a PDF. So after mm. talking with AP, I finally got it. And that's what kind of 
stirred up us uh, getting into this uh, conversation here. But um, yeah, a lot of like Hunt Manual is plenty. It's very different, but the inspirations are very similar, um, spiritually, like almost identical in the idea of probing the idea of the uh, what you would call on like a, you know, to to try and get as empirical as possible, like the Jungian shadow complex and what might be said of that about, um, you know, what that might involve with uh, unexplainable phenomena in general. And, uh, you know, um, in terms of like true crime, something like the uh, um, the Jersey, uh, the Jersey mod and Gilles de Ray, like I think it's uh it's I, I think it really rings to like the archetypal capacity of of things uh but I mean clearly there's no like direct evidence or anything right. um but he, right. he makes some interesting bits like uh the fact that his wife was named Joan um they were very interested and they had they had similar general interests um um and this these people were definitely interested in the occult um but and, you know, you you see that with like Lincoln and Kennedy too. Yeah, you see all those similarities. I think sometimes life just does that. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I uh, say that reality rhymes with itself. Yeah. <laughs> um. And I yeah, I think there's definitely some. Um. The more you look into true crime, um, it's, you know, I'm not so much interested in the brutality of it. Uh. You know, not really at all. As much as I am interested in the the sheer, I don't know, unexplainable, for lack of a better term. There's some cases that you look into where you just, just how could that have possibly happened? Um, mm. and and so how does it happen? And um, you know, you look into like you know, uh, Dahmer was creating the altar. Uh, he had the plans to create the altar of bones, and there's there's talk about um, there's there's like a surprising amount of uh. I don't know if you'd call it like, I guess, um, accounts. Yeah. Accounts would be a good, uh, way to put it of like poltergeists and Ted Bundy's childhood home. Um, mm. you know, there's, yeah, there's the more you look into it, the more you find that I think, um, like, you know, cause I even go into exorcism a little bit and, yeah. uh, and I, and I don't think that, you know, that's a, that's a very slippery slope. Um, and I think that it gets into hysteria quickly, but where my, um, where my research went with a lot of this, uh, with like the goblin universe in general was it seemed to have some sort of relationship to the human nervous system and how we process that on an, uh, imaginative or even, you know, metaphysical level. Like you look into phantom limb therapy or like even the, uh, sleep paralysis and the projection of the shadow people or even dreams. There's some sort of when our nervous system becomes overloaded, something happens and a projection process occurs. And I think that, um, I think that, you know, there's a lot to be said about unexplainable phenomena. Like, I don't think that's where the, the whole explanation lies, but I do think that's where the trail of breadcrumbs starts. And if you want to get more and more metaphysical with it, I think that there's every possibility for, let's say we, you know, this projection process is in motion and in, in effect. And if there's fertile enough soil, if you will, with the projection, then it might be able to, you know, be like a bottle for a genie. And there, there might be every possibility for something, you know, sentient or at least completely autonomous to then interact. But I think think that um if you try and follow you know try and make any sort of sense out of um you know the goblin universe um at large it has to start with the projection process somewhere yeah yeah, yeah. um you know and he makes a connection there uh well he makes the connections with jonah jonah ark and this guy but they're very flimsy to me 
the way they're connected. Like he's he's yeah. viewing it as this is pretty much proof of reincarnation. And I'm thinking the best proof we have of reincarnation is kids remembering past lives spontaneously. <laughs> right. Like. Period. And, and, and this was probably written before that was really well known. Um, yeah, I mean, well, Colin Wilson and in his introduction is like actually is critical of that chapter. Yeah. Uh, I, th- the, the, I think it's the one part that he quibbles with in the introduction, but he still kind of says like, it's an interesting idea, but he didn't flesh it out very well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, exactly. Makes, makes you wonder what it would have looked like if he had uh, lived long enough to make a final draft. And and the Joan of Arc stuff on its own is interesting. Like her whole Fair. story is fascinating. But yeah, it, and I mean, there's arguments to be made that there's uh, UFO related or tangential stuff with with Joan of Arc, yeah. visionary experiences and and such. Absolutely. So, yeah. um, he also notes uh, in this book at some point that areas of paranormal activity are also areas that strong emotions have been experienced. Which I mean, is not nowadays that seems kind of almost common sense. You know, like we know that, mm-hmm. but I think back in the, the, the seventies, this was more of an actual observation. Yeah. He was really hitting some nails on the head. Um, it's really in the same vein in terms of, um, I don't know, still being relevant, uh, as you know, like John Keel's eighth tower. Um, yes. like you could, yeah, yeah. If anyone hasn't read that, it's still when a, when a 14 kind of book is really like extra good, in my opinion, it's that, you know, they always have these sort of tangential like case studies or anecdotal stories and sometimes you know they age better than others and in certain books it's like the it's it's pretty timeless maybe you've never heard of it and maybe it's not that um it's you know it's debatable how relevant it is but it's weaved into the narrative so well and holiday you know especially for an incomplete draft he does a pretty great job of weaving some sort of strange narrative here where um you don't always understand how he gets to these conclusions but you see his train of thought and yeah. i think the uh the train of thought particularly was way ahead of its time and they, they, they all yeah, had- i mean it, it was kind of in the milieu too of a lot of 14 thinkers in the 70s were leaning towards the Jungian. I think that was kind of a thing in general, like Keel would and uh, Lauren Coleman would, uh, you had like Robert, Robert Anton Wilson writing a lot. Sure. And if you look at True. 14 times from the seventies, it's like a Jungian freak fest. <laughs> the articles were pretty wild back then, you know, um, no kidding. So. And, and he, what, one of the people he brings up that I, that I think is also very uh, not known is T.C. Lethbridge, who is mentioned numerous times in here. And I'm always like, oh, T.C. Lethbridge, uh, who I do want to do a show on at some point. But it seems like most people in Fortiana, in the paranormal, have no idea who he is. I don't think I've heard that name outside yes. of this. Yeah. Honest, well, I mean, huh? That partly speaks to like the divide, even though we speak the same language between... Um, UK English researchers and, and Americans. Yeah. Yeah, it does. Where, like a lot of the English people and uh, the English guys don't really get the same play over here. Um, and you know, obviously holiday and Wilson being, uh, Brits would have been more familiar, but yeah. Uh, well, they were, I yeah. think, I think they were friends too. Right. The, uh, and I, I hadn't heard of TC Lethbridge until, um, there's a band called the clan destined, which has the vocalist for Skyclad in it. And he, um, they, I guess it was a band called TC Lethbridge in the UK. And they <laughs> covered the song TC Lethbridge. And I was like, who's TC Lethbridge? And I looked up his book, Sell for a Fortune on, on Amazon, of course. 
I was able to get a, a compilation of like different of his different theories and stuff. But he kind of takes a uh, very grounded approach to paranormal phenomenon. It's 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 well worth checking into. I, I think Wilson writes more about him in a book called Beyond the Occult. Mm, okay. I just got to write about him somewhere, but uh, I, I know that some of that introduction is lifted. Um, <clears throat> if you're paying attention and you're a big Wilson fan, you start to notice that when he writes introductions to things, he kind of summarizes stuff he wrote in other books <laughs> and like manages to shoehorn it into the introduction. So, um, the Lethbridge material in the introduction for this one appears in another book of his, and uh, I think ah. it's beyond the occult. Okay. I also just got a uh, biography of TC Lethbridge. Um, from uh, Michael as well, so I'm going to check that out, and maybe, I don't know, I, that author might probably still alive, unlike both of these guys, unfortunately. Uh, right. So I might be able to have him on to talk about T.C. Lethbridge. Um, so I, I quoted one of the stories Ted tells in here, because uh, he's had a bunch of his own personal experiences that he relates throughout the book, and this one uh, was a ghost experience, he said. Uh, and he said, by this time I was half sat up in bed and feeling some apprehension we are often assured by pundits who have never been in a haunted house that ghosts are a product of expectation and imagination. I can assure these people that this is bunk. The thing I, the thing that was happening was real, and it confounded my natural expectation of the apparition. If it came into the room, would enter by the door. The room was gloomy, but not entirely dark, thanks to the night-long Scottish gloaming, and my gaze was fixed on the door. In fact, it never went near the door. The steps had now ceased, and suddenly I became aware that the ghost had taken a short cut by coming in a straight line from the stairhead and passed through several feet of masonry and was now beside the bed. I was now lying back hard against the headboard of the bed on one elbow trying to see the intruder. Two things happened. A man's voice, speaking in a small Belfast accent, suddenly demanded, And who the hell are ye? Simultaneously, a heavy blow crashed on the headboard above my head, exactly as if delivered by a hard fist. I not only heard the blow, but I felt it, since my back was pressed against the hard, pressed hard against the board. For several minutes, I remained frozen in position, expecting an even more unpleasant manifestation. Gradually, however, I realized that the power that had produced the effects was depleted. I could sense the atmosphere returning to normal. Even Soul, I don't know who Soul was offhand, uh, didn't care to sleep until dawn began to lighten the window when I turned over and slumbered for several hours. Yeah, it's a weird story. Um, I, uh, I, you know, I've, I've had some weird encounters, um, you know, like UFOs uh, I've seen and things like that, but never any, anything ghostly. But anytime I hear a story like that, it always makes me uh, think of the, I can't remember what book it's in. It's probably in multiple, honestly. Uh, but the concept that Jacques Vallée has of just like the, the, there's some seems like some sort of com completion of a circuit here mm. like the the human being involved in the situation um you know potentially it does seem like whether or not we have any sort of science for it um it would at least make like some sort of heuristic sense that there is absorbed energy you know um and i people have tried to look into that and as far as i know um haven't really found anything really to uh build that theory with but you know there's there's so much science that we don't know out there and it seems like if you know the matter could uh absorb uh keep information intact uh in some way um you know it does seem to be you know you know you could be skeptical all you like but um there's a lot of cases of um of uh you know hot spot locations obviously and only so much of it can be chalked up to placebo so i don't yeah. know there's something going on there 
And this one doesn't seem like it was a repeat sort of thing. Like it seems like it was responding to him. True. But yeah. Maybe, I mean, if we take time into effect here, maybe this guy was walking through this, you know, place back, you know, 300 years ago and came across the specter of Ted Holliday laying in his bed. Yeah. It sounds like very Donnie Darko ish almost. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. I like that. Yeah. I've wondered that about my own experiences with poltergeist activity or seeing weird things. Cause it's like, I always f- have felt like there was some time travel aspect to it. <laughs> yeah. I've, so. I, I'm on that kind of vein of thinking. Um, I've had the, I don't know, I guess the uh, just idea, I don't couldn't call it a theory um that it, it seems like um in like intuition if there's any sort of like afterlife review and where you're going through your life um and actually having some sort of more objective reaction to it um um it it it, it makes sense that you might feel that in intuition itself so it's a really out there thought but um i it's always stuck with me so yeah i do think that there's um something i think that the human experience um and the you know if you just want to call it intuition i guess um is something that can potentially exist outside of time like you know i definitely know for a fact that people have dreams of the future i don't i i don't um trust people who say that they can do it um like on command but you know i've talked to many people who have had uh i've had weird dreams of and uh snippets that have that have happened in broad day you know if, uh however long later and like these weird things happen and don't claim to know what it is but it's clear that they do yeah oh absolutely um he talks a lot about precognition in one of the the chapters and mm-hmm. uh I, I grabbed one of the stories out of here um the most terrible land accident of, of recent british history now remember this is published in the 70s uh took place on october 21st 1966 when 116 children and 28 adults were killed in a sea of coal waste which slid down a South Wales slag heap in uh, Aberfan after a heavy rain. During inquiries following the disaster, stories about precognition were rumored. Peter Fairley, a uh, science correspondent of the Evening Standard, collected 76 cases, cases which were analyzed by Dr. J.C. Barker. Of these, some 22 subjects were able to supply the names of witnesses who confirmed that the apparent precognition occurred prior to the catastrophe. One little boy, aged eight, did a drawing the day before he was killed. It showed slag heaps and was captioned, The End. That evening, the same little boy reported a man near the bathroom door. This was probably an apparitional form because no one could be found. Another child, nine-year-old Errol May, startled her mother by saying, Mummy, I'm not afraid to die. Her mother tried to direct her attention away from making such morbid remarks, but the little girl insisted, No, I shall be with Peter and Jane. Errol, Peter, and Jane were buried side by side in a in the great mass grave. Mm. Yeah, it um on a on a slightly not to make light of uh of a tragedy, but this is making me think a little bit of uh, that Nicolas Cage movie. Knowing, have you guys ever seen? Oh that? yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, he's just losing his mind over like the gematria and the the math that uh is predicting um tragedies and uh, things like that and. You know, I think um um I don't know. There's been there's been plenty of uh, strange cases. Uh, Dramatria and math, especially. That's where there's like that fine line between using like mysticism, esotericism, or magic to uh, uh for some sort of insight, and then just falling deep off into the rabbit hole of like your own OCD, yeah, uh, yeah. checks and balances and things. Well, that that that's Kenneth Grant. 
Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, good example. <laughs> you know, I, I like Kenneth Grant's stuff, but man, when he gets into the Gematria stuff, it'll be like paragraph after paragraph of, oh, this connects to this, and this number connects to this, and this connects to this, and you're going, okay, you're making my brain hurt. Yeah, I just don't know how much good it does in the long run. Um, yeah. It's like like the the number 23 with Jim Carrey, man. Like, right. It's a, it's a, it's a fun concept, but it does... It, just the more you try to expound upon it, it's like, what are we what are we doing here? I don't really know. And and it's hardly <laughs> it's like three enigma is a real thing though. <laughs> totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's a good point. The movie more so, what are we doing yeah. here? The uh the twenty three enigma yeah. is pretty interesting though. <laughs> so so he says on in here that uh three weeks is about the, the time period that most people have premonitions of stuff by. Um now in time loops, uh oh who wrote Time Loops? I can't remember his Eric name. Eric Thank you. I think says it's like three days is the common denominator he found. It's um, the magic number. Yeah. So he's saying, and I've had, you know, uh, dreams that gave me information about stuff. Not not so much precognitive dreams where I was experiencing it, but given information about stuff that didn't happen for six years. Wow. So that's. Yeah, I've had that. Yeah. So, I mean, it, three weeks might be the average. I don't know. Um, but he also, of course, goes into a whole chapter in here in Nostradamus. Which, you know, <laughs> I'm not sure how I feel about Nostradamus at this point. Like, I'm not all that convinced there's anything all that significant there. Yeah, uh, I think that might be a reasonable um, case for, you know, some sort of uh, a pareidolia going on there. Um, I don't know. And maybe, you know, it's also if you if there is such a thing well because i mean obviously there is i'm just more skeptical of people again who claim that they can do it like on command um, yeah but um um i don't know maybe if you just throw enough darts blindly at a board you're bound to hit a few and you know it, uh, it's a numbers game and even if that is the case um i don't know i there's still there's still probably some credit in there for them but i'm not a, really an expert it seems like one of those things like the kennedy assassination where it's just such well-trod territory at this point like i don't know if i really one day maybe i'll look into nostradamus more but it's like it seems like there's plenty of commentary on it and no one's really gotten anywhere yeah on exactly <laughs> Uh, but the interesting thing, he talks about that. Then he says, Errol's foresight, as well as the foresight of various adult witnesses, seem to extend forward in time to about 14 days prior to the accident. This may be related to a very curious phenomena observed by the writer on October 8th, 13 days before the Aberfin disaster happened. About 7.30 in the evening of that day, I was standing on the lifeboat slip at Tenby Harbor, fishing, in, fishing for whiting in the company of a dozen or so men and boys. It was a calm, clear night with a brilliant display of stars. Eventually, we all became aware of an object in the sky directly overhead, looking like a small, luminous, blue-gray cloud, and it was orbiting slowly in a circle equal to about three times its own diameter. About ten minutes later, there were exclamations from several of the fishermen as a dark object came out of the cloud and beamed a brilliant red light down on us. I felt a shock on realizing that here was a UFO going through the sort of weird maneuvers described in the press, but which I had never believed likely. The object with the red light was now moving leisurely in a south-southwesterly yeah, direction. <laughs> Simultaneously, the blue cloud was moving easterly at a rather faster speed. Months later, I tried to plot the tracks of these two objects. The luminous cloud was easier since it moved from a point directly overhead toward the east, and it was possible to use the lifeboat slip as sort of a datum. Assuming that it would hold a steady course, I projected a line the width of whales across the width of whales. I noticed that the cloud-like object had, in fact, held a steady course for 57 miles 
from the point we saw it, it would have arrived over or very near Aberfan at or about the time the first precognitive dreams and premonitions were starting to occur. Since we have no conclusive evidence of what uh, UFOs are or why they occur, it's purely speculative to attempt to draw conclusions from the above, but if UFOs are manifestations from a different time field and involve intelligences, uh, and a lot of people now suspect this may be so, then the Aberfan witnesses may have picked up on precognitions via telepathy from these intelligences. This may seem wild, but the facts are pretty wild. Mm. Facts are pretty wild. And I would say that, again, if you're looking at sort of a, the, 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 the idea I put forward that this stuff moves backwards in time, you know, that tragedy not only may have given some of these people precognition that it was coming, but may have also created enough energy to create a UFO sighting. Yeah, I'm, now you're starting to make me think of um, you know the whole prophecy part of the Mothman prophecies as well. Um, there's definitely there's definitely something to be said about um, unexplainable things. And uh, you know, I think um, having spent some time you know pondering this, I certainly don't expect to get all the answers. But it seems to make sense in the. Uh, the, with the the theory of uh, some sort of purging of the the nervous system in some way, if you are picking up on uh, and you know this is a like much more of a philosophical idea than a scientific one, but you guys will probably appreciate this. I've always wondered about like you know you have a really impactful moment in your life, and that moment uh, which could happen tomorrow is going to affect the rest of your life. And it almost feels like if that's if it's so impactful that it's going to affect the rest of your life, there's that much energy ahead of you. Might you not be able to feel that like, you know, a dog like sniffing out a storm or something like that? Right. Mm -hmm. right. Yeah, I think there might be something to that. Well, when it also makes me wonder if uh, I've often wondered this in, in, in specific cases, but uh, if, if there's a connection between manifestation and precognition. Where like manifesting something intentionally may just be your knowledge that it's already going to happen. Mm, right. Uh, so, and whatever this event is, is retrocausally making you make it happen. So it's kind of like a bootstrap paradox for yeah. events that aren't paranormal. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, I, I think too that, that, you know, when you look at the uh, psi research, you see that emotional stuff is the stuff we can actually track moving backwards in time. It's the stuff people have the precognition about. So if stuff doesn't just move in one direction, if it actually can move backwards, then like, like the Mothman prophecy situation was, is, is like the ideal, you know, perfect storm of this mm -hmm. where, you know, that bridge collapse couldn't have been a more traumatic event. You know, I mean, small town, Christmas time, you know, all those deaths, that's, you know, unthinkably horrible. Yeah. And if that information moved back and some people, because some people had precognitive dreams of like, you know, uh, presence fl uh, floating in the water and stuff. Oh, right. Yeah. But most people probably picked this up, but had no avenue to translate it. So it just became stress, which then became poltergeist energy, which then became the Mothman or something that came along and used that energy because suddenly there's this whole pool of energy there and it picks it up and it utilizes it to try and communicate. Yeah, and you know, some people, the skeptic might uh, consider that like so far fetched. But then you look into the the easiest, most astounding example of of anything vaguely similar to like a group collective uh, continuous manifestation, or like the miracles at Fatima. Um, right. And I like how uh, Jacques Vallée breaks that down as well. Like whatever you know, you could you could take the religious trimmings and. Um, 
set them aside. And there's still some really weird stuff going on there. Exactly. Um, yeah. And I think it's definitely the same with Point Pleasant. Like, even if, you know, I, I'm sure that some of those sightings were probably owls and whatever else, but just everything that went on, you look at that whole story of what happened to that town. It's, it's absolutely bonkers. Like you, there's, there's too much to be skeptical about. Like how yeah. many angles you're going to, you're going to be, you know, if you're skeptical about it, you're going to have to chase down a lot more angles than just that owl. So good luck. <laughs> <laughs> right. The men in black stuff. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. yeah, all the yeah, and then the 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 surrounding stuff like Indrid Cold and all that. And like it just yeah. the rabbit hole goes further and further. It was a weird time. Yeah, and you know one of the things Kiel said about the people of the town is that they seem to be more sensitive than average people. So again, prime candidates for creating PK energy. Yeah, and there were poltergeist experiences and stuff that were just typical poltergeist experiences happening during the during that time period too. And it all stops when the bridge collapses. Yeah. yeah, it really does sound like it would be made up. It's it's an it's a it's a a classic story for a reason. There's a reason people still talk about it plenty. Um, but yeah, the the Men in Black thing is a whole other thing. Um, I don't remember. He doesn't talk about. He doesn't go into Men in Black aside from his own personal experiences in the Goblin universe, yeah. does he? Yeah, not really. Because um, I know there's... Well, um, this is wild, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I don't remember that one uh, like enough to tell the story if I, you guys want to get yeah, into I, that. Yeah, I grabbed that one. Cool. Um, I just Because what happens, that happens after the exorcism of Loch Ness. Oh, yeah, we'll have to definitely have to talk about that. <laughs> um, but uh, the thing I wanted to bring up before that, though, is that sure, yeah, when yeah. you look at precognition and stuff like this, what does that say about free will versus determinism? You know, like, are there some points in, in our lives that are set? Uh, can we screw it up? Um, you know, or, or are we just on an already planned out path and we don't know it? I don't think it's, I don't think it's as simple as, as there's one way or another. Um, I think, uh, Wargo definitely seems to err on the side of, of determinism where oh, it's definitely. already determined. Um, from what I understand, I haven't really read his books. I no, just he, heard him. He thinks it. we live in a static universe and that we're just picking this stuff up from the future and there's no free will. Right, right, and uh, I don't, I don't agree with that. No, neither um, do I. I think I, I, well, just from divination, I've having read tarot for years. Uh, I, I've always thought that um, it's not fixed. I mean, I can tell you generally what's going to happen, but I can see where there's going to be forks in the road too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So why would you be able to advise anybody at all? <laughs> <laughs> um uh and i i've definitely felt like i've intuitively felt at points in my own life that there are there is a choice i can make at specific junctures and and i think that largely there's a grand scheme that's already mostly mapped out but each of us has free will at specific moments you know yeah. um, well like i said it's possible we can screw it up yeah we absolutely can and we often do <laughs> yeah um I, uh, you know, just, uh, I guess I'm in a movie mood, uh, but I'm going to, I'm going to uh, keep bringing it. Um, you made me think of, uh, the movie dark city. You guys have seen yes. that, right? Oh yeah. I think, yeah, that's a great thought experiment example. I, like, I do think that, um, there's something, uh, like on a, on a practical, super more practical level. Um, the, the idea of like addicts suddenly turning it around and getting clean, like, I guess, you know, that's more philosophical than scientific, but there, there seems to be, there just absolutely, you, there, you know, there's no doubt in my mind that there's something about the, uh, you know, you could call it the soul, you know, whether or not it exists after death. I'm inclined to believe so, but. I don't know. And uh, there's there's something about the human being that, um, you know, is it, 
it's probably something that's followed us through our whole adaptation process. Like, you know, it, it, it makes you wonder about like how people started processing their own internal monologue at the beginning of like the dawn of um, uh, the concept of um, anything we had about like an internal life or metaphysics or philosophy. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's um, it uh, there's a lot of different directions you could go in. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so basically they, they tried to do an exorcism of Loch Ness, um, and basically nothing happened. And, uh, afterwards he wanted to go visit this UFO landing site that had, uh, happened a few weeks, I think, prior to them doing this. And the, the exorcist told him he shouldn't do it. And then the woman he was staying with, Mrs. Carey, uh, he says, caution me strongly against visiting the UFO landing site. She was sitting in her usual armchair with her back to the window and overlooking the front garden. Um, I was facing the window. Basil was on my right, pouring a drink at the sideboard. Mrs. Carey said, one of the people, one reads of people being whisked away. It may be nonsense, but I shouldn't go. Coming on top of Dr. Orman's similar advice, I decided then I would not go. At that precise moment, there was a tremendous rushing sound like a tornado outside of the window, and the garden seemed to be filled with an indefinable frantic movement. A series of violent thuds sounded as if from a heavy object striking either wall or the sun lounge door. Through the window behind Mrs. Carey, I suddenly saw what looked like a pyramid-shaped column of blackish smoke about eight feet high, revolving in a frenzy. Part of it was involved in a rose bush, which looked as if it was being ripped out of the ground. Mrs. Carey shrieked, and I turned her face, I turned her face to the window. The episode lasted 10 or 15 seconds. And then was instantly finished. I sat there staring at the window, feeling alarmed and rather peculiar. Basil, who was preparing his drink, had heard nothing, and he turned in amazement when his wife screamed. Dutifully, he searched the garden, but found it silent and quite normal. The next morning, I asked Miss Carey to record the incident as she saw it, and she said we were sitting in the sitting room. I had my back to the window. Ted Holliday was facing me sitting on the sofa. My husband was in the room standing on my left by the sideboard. We were discussing flying saucers or something of that sort. Ted told me the story of one that was supposed to have landed on the far side of the glen up on top of the hills, and he was thinking of going up there to take photos, and I said, I don't think I would. If I were you, I wouldn't go near the place. One has heard stories about people being whisked into space. I don't think it would be good, good to go near there, and I repeated this. And then suddenly there was the most frightful noise, three terrific crashes just outside the window by the front door as if something was hurting itself at the door. I think, or the window, I'm not sure. Looking over my shoulder, I got the impression that there was something at the window, although I didn't see exactly what it was. Then looking at Ted, I saw a beam of white light that shot across the room from the window on my left. Um, I saw a white circle of light on Ted Holliday's forehead. It was a white light, not like electric light, and the circle was about three or four inches in diameter. I thought the house had been struck by lightning with this light shooting across the room, but I couldn't understand why the light was white, and I got a terrible fright. The light stayed on for only perhaps a second, but I definitely saw it. There was no question about it. I said to Ted, what on earth's that? What happened? And he said to my husband, what was that? You better go see. He said, I don't know what you're talking about. I never heard a thing. He went out to look, but there was nothing there. It gave us an awful fright. It gave Ted a fright, too. I couldn't imagine what those frightful crashes and this light shooting in the win window were. He said he'd seen a dark, swirly shape outside the window. Well, I saw something there, but I couldn't say what it was. What I really noticed was this beam of light shooting across the room on the Ted's forehead, the white circle on his head. 
This light was only visible to Mrs. Carey, although I was staring fixedly at the window throughout, I, I saw nothing of it. The really odd part was that it evidently illuminated the precise area where the holy water had been applied to the exorcism. Hmm. Yeah, there's a lot going on there. I'd like to yeah. hear your thoughts on that, AP. Oh, it's, uh, it's a lot of classic high strangeness going on there. Um, so I have a lot more background on this stuff too, because the guy that did the exorcism of Loch Ness, pretty colorful character that I ended up looking into him quite a bit. And, um, I talked to, talked about him on a recent episode of, uh, conspire normal about a month or two ago. Um, and it's also up on my blog where I wrote about it, but this dude, uh, Dr. Elmond was, (laughs) In addition to exercising Loch Ness, also exercised the Bermuda Triangle. Yeah, uh, battled vampires and. Uh, Wasn't he also a circus exorcist? Yes, he worked for the circus, yeah. and uh, his first exorcism was exercising demons out of a pair of lions that just right. killed the lion tamer. Yeah, and there's some quote in here where um um he emphasizes to Holiday where. They have to get as close to the center of the lock as possible for the exorcism. Yep, and he yep. asks him why. And he says, well, it's the same principle as my circus exorcisms. I got to be in the cage with the animals. Like, man, this guy's a wild dude. I sure would like to have a drink with him. <laughs> yeah. And he looked, and he looked, he was a little old man, which is the funniest part. Like, <laughs> he, he reminds me of like Mr. Magoo, like just like this little, little old guy, but he's like battling vampires and circus lions that are possessed by demons and things like that. <laughs> Um, some of his exorcisms were just at bad intersections where, <laughs> where he claimed there was a black spot that was causing people to have accidents. Um, Are you serious? Yeah. Wow. What yeah, a character. Whole book. There's two different books about him. There's one that I think he wrote and, uh, about his life and the one that I have, which is, um, the man who exercised the Bermuda triangle. <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, yeah, wild character and he's pretty great, but the getting to the center of the lock was part of it because what he actually did was a separate exorcism at four different points on the shore oh, and one right. in the middle. And it was supposed to approximate a cross. Ah, oh, right. Okay. Yeah. And it was never his intent to exercise the monster from the lock. Um, what he was trying to do was exercise the evil influence over men's minds yeah. that the monster may or may not have been exerting like the monster <laughs> itself might be extraneous it might be beside the point he's just trying to uh eliminate the evil aura of the lock you know so, distinction yeah 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 I mean, because it all sounds really wacky and um uh Omond is one of these guys that uh, the name came i came up a lot when i was reading about Loch Ness as a kid because i was obsessed with Loch Ness. you'd always hear about this exorcism but it was treated as kind of like a gimmick and i never really thought of Omond being much worth looking into but when you actually hear his reasoning behind stuff he sounds a lot more sane than <laughs> than you might think see uh, yeah that's uh you know i really i actually find the mindset refreshing i don't know how much um i don't know all you know i i can't say that i don't know even where i would begin to gauge the follow-through on that um but i do think the idea of um i don't know it's certainly a very cool like comic book kind of inspired idea and it's uh, if these things, if there are commonalities, if we are just tapping into some uh, to like the shadow complex of our psyches, that's, you know, creating some sort of uh, window further into, you know, potentially other autonomous or sentient unexplainable phenomena, then um, 
it would follow that you might be able to exercise something or at least take the energy from something like Loch Ness. Um, I remember, you know, being um, young, like, it's like out of high school, like really uh, sinking my teeth into these ideas more and wondering like, man, wh- what if, you know, what if all this isn't separated? Like, what if you could find the right words or the right mentality and then just summon a, a Bigfoot in the wilderness? Like, yeah. The car, yeah, it's yeah. not off the table, you know? No, it's, it's not. definitely not. And you, there's you, that's you, the thing is like, Omond was big on distinguishing these things because he would get called to clear a house of ghosts. And if he found that it was just a regular ghost and it wasn't hurting anybody he would just talk the homeowner into learning how to coexist with the ghost (laughs) awesome and he felt the same way about loch ness he thought nessie could very well just be the ghost of a dinosaur and if that's the case it's fine like there's no reason you can't have a dinosaur ghost in your lake (laughs) (laughs) as long as it's not evil all i'm here to do is to clear the evil away you know um so so i mean it's a very nuanced view and i mean the man wasn't a slouch because he did have a PhD in theology, he, his doctorate. Um, he's, and he worked with a psycho, uh, psychology foundation that was uh, international in Europe. So he ended up doing a lot of things in Sweden. Um, they would they would defer to him when when it came to matters of faith, you know. Um, so he had kind of a psychology background as well. Huh. Or at least he had a lot of colleagues that were um, and. Uh, speaking of Sweden, that UFO sighting that they're referencing in there, that was a man called uh, Jan of Sundberg. Um, and he was he was kind of a, he was a Swedish. Uh, well, I mean, he's kind of gone down in history as kind of a hoaxer, uh, hoaxer, huckster kind of investigator and writer. Um, uh, Swedish investigator and writer Fred Anderson has written about him. Um, if you can find his blog uh, or his medium account, he writes on medium. Mm. Uh, but, uh, yeah, Sundberg's an interesting character <laughs> on his own, but, uh, the, apparently that, that sighting was probably made up because where he was talking about, he was basically talking about a flying saucer having landed in a clearing at a very specific place on the lock right? where, mm. the, where there didn't exist a clearing. Like when people went to investigate it, there was no clearing there. It was all just trees and there wasn't room for what he described to have happened, you know, which, which makes me wonder if he was, if he did experience something, but it was something very much stranger than just a UFO landing. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't because, mean it's not true. And yeah, the fact wh- that he makes stuff up to also doesn't mean it's not true. Right. True. But I mean, why, I mean, why makes holidays st- driving at for the whole book? Like the first sentence of the book is like, we never really can know what's true and what's not right. Right. <laughs> And if you're going to make something up, why would you make something up that would be that easily disproved? Well, you're just assuming, banking on the fact that nobody's going to go check. That's true. That's true. <laughs> um, Especially if he's going to go back to Sweden and tell the tale in Swedish. That's a good point. <laughs> so anyway, this 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 continues this experience because he says the next morning before breakfast, I decided to step down to the lower car- to the lower caravan to collect some uh, oddments for my suitcase. Um, across the grass beyond the roadway at the top of the uh, slope leading down to the Loch Ness at the top of which the caravan was located stood a figure. It was a man dressed entirely in black. Unlike other walkers who sometimes paused along here to admire the Loch Ness panorama, this one had his back to the lock and was staring at me fixedly as soon as I turned the corner. Indeed, to all appearances, he was waiting for me. We were about 30 yards apart. For for several seconds, I stayed back wondering who the hell this was. Simultaneously, I felt a strong sensation of malevolence, cold, and passionless. Passionless. Yeah, passionless. Okay. 
Vaguely, I remembered Sundberg's black figures around the UFO, and for a second I tried to form an association. But the notion seemed so utterly absurd in broad daylight with half a dozen friends and within calling distance that I shut the idea out. I walked forward warily, never taking my eyes off the figure. He was about six feet tall and appeared to be dressed in a black leather or plastic. He wore a helmet and gloves and was masked, even to the nose, mouth, and chin. The eyes were covered in goggles, but on closer approach, I could detect no eyes behind the lenses. The figure remained motionless as I approached, except possibly for a slight stirring of the feet. I didn't, it didn't speak, and I couldn't hear any breathing. I drew level and hesitated slightly, uncertain what to do next, then walked past at a range of about a yard. I stopped a few feet beyond him and gazed out at the Loch Ness. I stayed thus for perhaps ten seconds, making a decision. Something about the figure seemed abnormal, and I felt the need to test whether or not it was real. I started to turn with the vague plan of pretending to slip on the grass so that I might lurch against the figure and thus check its solidity, but this proved impossible. As I was turning my head, I heard a curious whispering or whistling sound and as I swung around to find the man had gone. In two steps, I was on the road. There was about half a mile empty road visible to the right and about a hundred yards to the left. No living person could have gotten out of sight so quickly, yet he had undoubtedly gone. And the follow-up to this is that he says, when I returned to Loch Ness in 1974 to continue investigations, I was stopped for a few days with a heart attack. As a stretcher carried me up the side of the lock, I peered groggily over the side and noted with cynical approval that we had just passed over the exact spot where the man in black stood the previous year. Synchronicity and the forces that control it never give up. Indeed. Yep. Yeah, that, pretty good cherry on top to a lot of um, uh, themes that we've discussed right there. Yes. And again, yeah, I mean, that, that could have killed him too. And, uh, I mean, I think he eventually did die of, of heart disease or a heart attack. Did he? I think so. Um, uh, so, I mean, it's kind of interesting when you consider the associations between men in black and uh, the Grim Reaper, the the whole uh, the motif there. True, true. Also, yeah. a really bizarre man in black, like uh, plastic or leather and like yeah. the helmet and goggles. And he just seems like a psycho biker from hell. <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> But but again, if you look at that idea that, that energy moves backwards in time, maybe the fact that he had a heart attack a year later on that spot is what caused the man in black apparition. Yeah, yeah. it's it's very possible. You know, it was it was he, he, he that's how he interpreted that energy coming back because he couldn't get it on a one to one basis. Yeah, and I mean, there's precedent for this sort of thing, like with doppelgangers. Um, yeah, there's a story of uh, of Gerta meeting his own likeness on the road, and then. Uh, something I, th- I, th- I think he like ended up being pre- a premonition of something probably shouldn't have even brought that up if I can't remember the story that well <laughs> yeah you're right though I do I totally forgot about that I wish I knew the story better as well but there is an instance of um of of, of a doppelganger with a Gautier. um but uh yeah the uh the men in black um your listeners are probably um uh pretty familiar like it's it's, I'm sure it's not uncharted territory here, but um, I think to like someone uninitiated, quote unquote, it might sound weird to have uh, men in black lumped in with like uh, the actual unexplainable phenomena. But um, and AP and I have talked about this before. I, I'm pretty sure we brought it up when uh, you were on uh, my show, but uh, we talked about uh, the researcher Jim Keith, mm-hmm. who's another Fortean researcher, and he had a 
He had a whole small book um, dedicated to the men in black, and he broke it down into a few different categories where he said that there's definitely, uh, you know, just some traditional alphabet agency types going on. But then if you're actually looking into it um, very quickly, we start to see really strange what you would call Fortean phenomena to the extent that it almost seems like it seems like if there's any uh, uh, recurring themes with the men in black, um, it seems like they are trying to imitate humans. Yeah. Um, which is so weird. Like it's surprising, but men in black are might be some of the most interesting of the paranormal phenomena. It's just what is going on. It doesn't make that much sense. Um, what are they doing? What are they probing? But Jim Keith also goes into how, yeah, it, it, like that sort of grim reaper esoteric, um, he draws archetypal lines of comparison to you know like the uh the um motif of you know like cloaked black magicians in the woods like these ideas of these figures in black that are mysterious and foreboding have always been with us and potentially it's just the continuation of that oh that makes sense uh, <laughs> but whatever be the case um you know alphabet agencies aside there's some yeah <laughs> It, like if if no one uh, any if no listeners have uh, gone down that rabbit hole uh, the 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 stories in in uh, the given by people like John Keel is a great example um, that's some some wild men in black accounts mm-hmm. um, but um, yeah <clears throat> what do you think about all that AP well um, one of the things about the strange behavior of men in black to me uh, from the perspective of totally normal but still very weird phenomena is um, the concept of shock induction with hypnosis um, it's possible that just by doing something absurd and bizarre enough you can shock somebody's sensibilities and they become suggestible during that time yeah uh, the one way of doing this I suppose if you know how is like kind of knocking the knees out from somebody so they fall and then when you're catching them you can draw them into the state <laughs> it's a sudden shock to the system so that's a great just being, point so just the uncanniness of the bizarre behavior like you think about the man in black in point pleasant in mary hire's office that's um like looking at a pen like he's never seen one before yeah right you know and uh she says you know you can just take the pen if you like it so much and then he just runs out the door and he's like cackling like he, he just uh <laughs> fooled her somehow you know well, the, stuff well, like that that's well, just unsettling or confusing can can put people into kind of a kind of a trance state which yeah i'm not a hypnotist and i can't really explain it beyond that but i have heard it described that way from um mentalists and and uh um and hypnotists and uh should be mentioned that those sorts of people were working with alphabet agencies during mk ultra so <laughs> yeah um and i believe in dimensions valet mentions sort of that as as a way of disarming people like i, I use as the example of someone asking what time it is and then they answer and they say no it's two o'clock and then they walk away right you know just just leaving someone disconcerted like what what just happened you know yeah yeah. And it leaves them in a potentially more suggestible state. Uh, yeah, I live in a city where that's just how people behave. So, I mean, <laughs> it wouldn't work on me. 
<laughs> it's yeah. also interesting that he points out that Loch Ness is basically along a fault line. Ah, and yeah. so and so when you when you look at like Devereaux's work that you know UFOs are most common along fault lines. There's no reason that sea monsters wouldn't also be common along fault lines if if it's sort of a, an energy thing if it's creating a, a particular type of energy. Well, Holiday was also big on ley lines. Yeah, mm-hmm. the uh, the Watkins Old Street track stuff, and he gets into that a lot in um in the dragon in the disc yeah and also in uh the david enigma which is an amazing book that nobody ever talks about um i actually don't know that one what is it it's called the david enigma okay uh, it's spelled d-y-f-e-d but it's welsh so it's pronounced david hmm. um and it, it, it's a collaboration between himself and randall jones pew who was part of the British UFO Research Association. And it's about a UFO flap in West Wales in 1977, I think. Wow. Yeah, Uh, including a flying saucer landing outside of school um, in Pembroke, I think. And then um, the Ripperston Farm saga, which that has a ton of high strangeness around it. But yeah, excellent book. It's a really good, really highly strange series of UFO accounts from uh the 70s in west wales interesting i i did not i was not aware of that yeah i mean uh like i said i'd never hear anybody talk about this book our strange skies recently did a podcast about those events and referenced that book but um largely i don't ever hear anybody talk about it which is a shame because it's a really good one yeah i'm gonna have to look into that as well and it's a lot easier to find than the goblin universe so <laughs> oh good <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure how I feel about ley lines, honestly. Like, I, I've seen some people present some some interesting stuff, and other people seem to be able to dismiss it just as as validly. So I'm I'm sort of torn on it. That that's how I feel as well. I was uh, I was curious what you guys thought of it. It's one of those things where I um I could definitely um I haven't done the full amount of research that I could on it. Um, my brain tends to go more philosophical and psychological. Um, but from what I understand, it seems to make a a, a, a heuristic level of sense in the in the with the idea of like you know uh, heuristic being trial and error, observation and understanding of the world around you. That I you know i feel like there's probably some sort of merit to it but i don't think it's you know no pun intended but i don't think it's like very straightforward um yeah yeah. but you know i think i think that there's something to it um it makes sense that uh um you know like as above so below if uh the if the if you if there's an anatomy to the the human being uh like even energetically i guess if you will then i'm sure there is to the earth as well um yeah I kind of think of astrology the same way. I don't put, I'm not one that puts a lot of personal weight into astrology, but when you look at it as like on a historical level, the philosophy of astronomy and, you know, considering the idea that maybe some of these things, um, like, you know, like an interesting takeaway for me with that is potentially our relationship, our distance to the sun more so than these other planets might have, you know, clearly it has some sort of effect on life. Oh, um, certainly. yeah. So I think that there's, you know, with these kinds of things, these like old school, you call it esoteric, uh, physical, like geographical sciences. I just say with a grain of salt, I think it's very heuristically interesting, but I don't, I don't really know how far it goes. All right, we got to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Quick mid-show break here, and uh, I'm going to give you some contact info and a recommendation. So contact info is simple. Everything is at wheredoutheroadgo.com. 
And uh, if you have a story you want to share for a listener, story show, stories at wheretotheroadgo.com. Everything else can be uh, sent to contact at wheretotheroadgo.com. You can become a patron there for only $3, get extra content all month long. And um, yeah, links to all our social media, Discord, everything can be found on the website. All right, as far as recommendations, I'm going to go with a a fairly new um, sci-fi TV series called Silo. Now, I'm only three episodes in, but it's really good. And I saw an article recently um, that people really weren't talking about it, and it was an excellent show, so I decided to check it out. And they were right. It's an excellent show, and it's on uh, Apple TV or Apple Plus, whatever that's called. And uh, sometime in the future, people are living in this gigantic uh, silo. Not like a missile silo. It's just a a sort of vertical-based structure that is huge. And they think the outside air is contaminated and they can't go outside, but there are people who are starting to doubt that narrative. And it's really, really good so far. It's There's a lot of uh, mystery to it and a lot of stuff they, they can work out over the course of the season. The acting is excellent. The writing is excellent. So if you like sci-fi and you like um, yeah, sort of a... I, I don't want to call it post-apocalyptic because it's, it's, it is, in a sense, like whatever. They don't know what happened, why they're in this silo. Um, mystery science fiction, let's say, with some maybe political tinges around the sides as they're they're dealing with what uh, the higher ups may be hiding from them. So I would say from three episodes in, this is highly recommended. This is a really cool show, Silo S I L O. All right, with that, let's go back to our conversation about the Goblin Universe. So you're listening to Where Did the Road Go? And I have here with me Mr. Anthony Tyler. How you doing, folks? And AP Strange. Hey. And we're talking about the Goblin Universe from uh, Ted Holliday. And uh, this book really does go all over the place. Everywhere. Uh, which I guess was his, his point as he was trying to uh, to kind of show how these things all have similar connections. One of the things I noticed, he's talking about the, the black cat sightings. And I realized that a lot of these sightings, like monster sightings and UFO sightings, tend to happen in flaps. Mm-hmm. And, then, and, which is, and they behave like poltergeist sightings, the fact that they build to a certain point and then they just kind of decay. Uh, with without anything ever being caught. Yeah, I think at this point, though, I think very recently, British authorities have just kind of admitted that they have big cats in in the UK now. <laughs> but have they caught any? I don't know that they've actually caught any, but they have enough evidence that they're like, yeah, I mean, there are some. We we're, we're not going to continue saying they're not. But <laughs> yeah, I know there's. I can't remember where um, because it's been a minute since I've looked into this. But there are parts of the U.S. that, uh, like, I want to say, I I think Texas is one example where um, there's uh, like, and I don't remember the specific cat, but I, I like it's a, a giant cat that's not supposed to be in Texas, like a cougar, or a mountain lion, or something, and. Uh, um, the po- only point being is that there are definitely instances of, um, people finding these, uh, you know, whether they be big cats or other, exa- other species, um, where it starts out as like Fortean mythology. And then actually, eventually people are like, Oh, I guess this is a thing. Like with the platypus was the same way. Oh, sure. So, yeah. 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 Um, but the, the, the big cats, it gets a little extra for sure. It's, uh, I don't know. I don't know where to, how to fully sift through that sometimes. It's, it's just a wild story. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the other things I clipped here is he says, um, oh, what did I do here? Yeah. A large body of testimony holds that fairies are repelled by iron. 
This observation may turn out to be very significant because many modern students of the UFO phenomena are convinced that geomagnetism is fundamental to the production of the effects. And iron, as any first-year electrical student knows, is reactive to magnetic fields. There is an interest, increasing amount of evidence that UFOs are intimately related to the magnetic forces and therefore that soft iron at the local level may indeed have an inhibiting effect on the phenomena. Now remember, this is being written in 1970-something. This is not current day. And that's that's very similar to where things are going now. Yeah. In, on that note, as just a, maybe a tiny uh, like side note, I wanted to ask you, AP, because you brought up that this was this like Fortean projectionist sort of thought was a lot more common at the time. And it seems like it's gotten a little more of a resurgence recently after a lull. Um, why, yeah, I absolutely think that's true. And I'm happy to see it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah why do you think that was uh, um, what was the lull for i i think it's a i think it's just a pendulum swing you know this pendulum swings one way and then it swings back the other we go from materialism to uh more metaphysical ideas symbolic ideas and then it swings back and forth um sometimes all it takes is is evidence appearing and and that can be very distracting you know <laughs> uh, or sensational report I mean, as evidenced by the fact that Holiday didn't want this book released because he was so convinced by the famous flipper photo. Um, and I, I guess I have to explain this stuff because when I say famous, it's only famous in, in my head at this point. <laughs> I, I think as far as Loch Ness goes, that's a pretty famous photo. Okay, people still know the photo. Somebody got a photo that appears to be a diamond-shaped flipper, and uh, and you know the naturalist Sir Peter Scott was so convinced by this evidence that he actually gave Nessie a Latin name, a Linnaean category, which was uh, Nessiteris rhombopteryx, huh. which is translated as you know the the uh, nest dweller with the diamond-shaped fin. Mm. Um, so I mean. You, here you have F.W. Holliday who followed this arc where in his first book, The Great Orm of Loch Ness, he's describing a biological creature. Um, his idea was that Nessie was actually a mollusk. Um, uh, an example, a, giant, a gigantic version of the ancient uh, Telemonstrum gregarium which was basically like a uh, uh, invertebrate that we have only see in the fossil record. And usually they're very tiny, the ones that mm -hmm. we have. Um, and we only know of them through imprints that they left in fossilized stone. He went from there to the dragon in the disc where he gets a lot more esoteric and talks about mythology and ley lines and magic and fairies and all kinds of things. And then uh, his thought evolved to the point where he's talking about like, a matrix of reality that is much stranger than we're able to perceive. Um, and when, <laughs> when he gets this far, all of a sudden evidence that Nessie may be a flesh and blood creature is so accepted that a famous naturalist is giving it a Latin name. He abandons it altogether and he wants to go back to that that biological entity hypothesis, you know, and that was part of the reason he really wanted to abandon this book. He didn't want it out there is he was embarrassed by it because he now thought his original hypothesis was way closer. Oh, wow. Okay. Good insight. Right. That, that, that's the arc of holidays um, evolving thoughts on things, which is amazing because you're almost seeing somebody come to these realizations in real time where he's, um, you could see he struggled with it. Like this was all yeah. very emotionally important to him, you know. Very. And, and he and, was uh, he was honest, intellectually honest enough to keep changing how he viewed the thing based on what was coming out evidentially. Right. Exactly. 
and he almost thought he would look foolish if he was to publish the Goblin universe as it was or to continue down that road in the face of evidence of a biological creature. Right. So, Which, of yep. course, has amounted to nothing. <laughs> yeah. well, right. Now we're doing DNA sampling of the lock and, um, and finding nothing out of the ordinary. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, well, like I said, the, the, the fact that there's a, there's a fault line running under there is interesting to me. Mm-hmm. I mean, because that, that, that's energy. Um, and he, he talks a little more about this. He says, uh, a study done by Sebastian Rabot of a 1972 UFO wave in Puerto Rico showed that the majority of settings occurred within a 30-mile or a 30-kilometer radius of, an, of areas which are magnetically anomalous. Areas which have a good deal of higher or lower than average reading, magnetically speaking, are found all over the planet, although it's far from clear what causes them. Rabot noticed that the odd fact that UFOs were never sighted directly over the anomalous areas, but always from the periphery outwards. John Keel believed this outward extension of the phenomena may be up to about 320 kilometers. Now, when I had Greg, uh, uh, oh my God, I can't remember his last name. Greg Little. Greg Little, thank you. We were talking about uh, a Marian apparition in Egypt, and every time that apparition shows up, there's an earthquake within 300 miles. Mm. And what that connection is, is unknown, but it was a fairly consistent thing they found. Yeah. And uh, there was another one here where he talks about- Isn't there also like earth lights? Isn't that a phenomenon associated with earthquakes? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, Oh, it was this one with the eels. He said, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Eric Hiscock on the round the world voyage in their yacht Wanderer 3 had left Fiji and were about 400 miles out to sea, heading for Australia when they came across a mass of creatures, which they at first mistook for ordinary sea snakes. Uh, Eric Hiscock records, the sea was literally alive with them, and at times it was impossible to plunge the boat hook down without touching one. Near the surface, there were little snakes, a foot or less in length, but lower down, just within boot boat hook reach, were snakes as long as the Wanderer, their boat, which was 30 feet, and as thick as my arm. They were of a jelly-like substance, pale brown in color, and with dark brown regular markings on them. Our attempts to capture one failed, because when we got the boat hook under it, which was easy enough to do as the creatures were slow-moving and took no avoiding action, and lifted part a bit above the surface, the snake immediately broke in two, and the two snakes went wriggling along where one had been before. We have since seen sea snakes of a more substantial nature, particularly in the Arafura Sea, which were solid land-like snakes with tough skins. But the jelly-like snakes we met that calm day in the South Pacific must have been out of the ordinary, for we have never seen anything of the kind since, nor have we met anyone familiar with them. That evening, the Hiscocks picked up a broadcast from Fiji saying that a minor earthquake had taken place, resulting in a 15-foot tidal wave. They wondered reasonably enough if some great underwater disturbance had forced the creatures up from the abyss. This would account for the large number of their sluggish behavior. The transparent appearance can be accounted for by suggesting that they were larval forms because some marine larvae are indeed transparent. What a 30-foot larva would become as an adult boggles the imagination, however. Huh. Yep. So again, though, you have an earthquake happening right around something anomalous. It just makes me think of Godzilla. (laughs) (laughs) And also, um, there was a a sea serpent photo that from the seventies that, that caused a lot of controversy that was, I think taken in Australia. 
or off the coast of New Zealand. And uh, it was kind of, people referred to it as a tadpole. It almost looks oh. like a, like a gigantic tadpole. It's got a yeah. guy in a rowboat. Yeah, um, yeah. Yep. Yep. I love that photo. And I used to, as a kid, imagine that it was a tadpole, which would imply the uh, existence <laughs> of enormous sea frogs. <laughs> <laughs> that would be awesome as prophesied by hp lovecraft <laughs> um i got um a, a question for you guys yes yeah. i've i've talked to uh, i've talked to both of you about this before so i'd be interested in your thoughts given that we've done all this legwork um and i don't want to derail it too much but given that we've brought up ufos in this um goblin universe setting where do you guys think to uh, have it somewhat topical i guess like i really want to know where you think this uh puts us with all this uh public fascination and preoccupation that we have on ufos uh like what do you think the implications are if um if i guess would be the more pointed question what do you think the implications are if the goblin universe plays a role in ufo phenomena and what is this dangling carrot that everyone is clamoring after right now when it comes to government secret tech and all this stuff because i'm extremely skeptical to say the least yeah well we, we just did a show on this uh recently and the problem with all this disclosure stuff is it's it's the same people over and over again Right. I mean, you look at this latest guy who comes out, of course, with no evidence, same claims that have been made a million times. And then you look and, you know, he, he was, uh, you know, very connected to Greer, to Louis Elizondo, to Hal Putoff. To, I mean, it's the same names wow. again and again and again. Yeah, he and, didn't even, he didn't even get into it until 2017 when he read the article about the Tic Tac. Yeah. <laughs> You know, it's just um, like there's for some reason they want to push this narrative, whether it, it's I mean, there's a goal there somewhere, whether it be yeah. uh, funding for space weapons or, you know, who knows, who knows what what the, the end game is. But I doubt they're going to tell us anything useful about UFOs Agreed. on a metaphysical and philosophical level, though. I think it's just ufology as a socio uh, as a sociological phenomena. At, uh, interacting with the phenomena in a way um, where I think anybody with a, w with a genuine interest and, and intellectual honesty approaching the subject has to go through their own sort of chapel perilous of the, of, of ufology. True. <laughs> really. True. And it, and it involves, it's like an initiation that involves um, enchantment and disillusionment over and over again. Yeah. Until you find a path, that uh you're comfortable with and in in my case and in the way i see it especially with people who are experiencers i think it has a lot more to do with self-discovery than yes. it does anything else like yes. coming to terms with yeah. who you are well you know but there, i think there's a bunch of stuff going on when we deal with ufos i don't think there's any one thing i think that that the people who have repeated experiences that's that is definitely seems to be the case it seems to be some kind of shamanistic awakening uh, so I'm just talking path. about the subject broadly and even, e even approaching the subject as something you want to investigate. Oh yeah. 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 Like Greenfield talks about this a little bit in, um, the, the book saucers and saucers. It was kind of a collection of stuff that he wrote in the seventies. Um, so same time period, I guess, but, uh, everybody from the experiencer to the investigator, to the writer of the books, to the debunker and to the consumer, the person actually reading the books and reading the stuff and absorbing the material. That's all part and parcel of the phenomena. You know, it's yeah. one big holistic thing. <laughs> we all are the UFO, you know? <laughs>
I agree with that in um, the magical sense. And that, and I, I agree with that entirely. I find myself agreeing with Greenfield way more than I would have ever thought, but <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that, you know, when we, when we actually look at what's behind the phenomenon though, you have that shamanic sort of thing going on, but you, I also, believe so, yeah. but you also have the one-off experiences where someone sees something, they never have any other experiences. It doesn't so much change their life. It's just one of those things. Sometimes they even forget about it for a long time. Uh, it's like, you know, the person who doesn't have a bunch of paranormal encounters in their life, but then they see Bigfoot run across the road. Yeah. Yeah. If nothing else, I, um, you know, to, um, to try and uh, keep swinging at like a philosophical insight here. Um, it seems like anytime something surreal or unexplainable like this happens, even if it's someone that is completely disinterested in it. It just seems to be wherever it comes from, uh, just like, you know, like that hermetic trickster wink and a nod from the cosmos. So it's yeah. just like, you know, here's here's something for you. Yeah. Um, like, you know, chew on that for a little bit. And, and, and one of the only takeaways I feel like co- concrete takeaways from something like a concept like the goblin universe is I think that whole wink and a nod is a, a huge part of it all. I think that that is that's part of what it's doing. Like it, that's yeah. whatever be the case, whatever the context is, that's the message they're getting across. Yeah. Whatever they are. Yeah. And, and holiday does a good point of, of saying, we don't, we don't know what life is. We don't know what death is. We know very little about the universe we inhabit, uh, which is something I've been saying forever. Uh, it's just, you know, we think we do, we, we have this illusion that we understand things, but we really don't. Like no matter no amount of measuring and and scientific analysis is going to explain uh, the bigger mysteries on, on, in this world why we're here in the first place. Well, that's what it's all about, right? Finding meaning. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So. so this seems like a decent place to stop, and we can continue a little bit in a Patreon segment. Uh, we can right talk. On. I have a, a couple other segments I uh, I clipped from the book that were really interesting. But uh, we've been talking about the Goblin universe from Ted Holliday, and technically it's Ted Holliday and Colin Wilson, because as we said, Colin wrote like a fourth of the book um, in the introduction. And, and you know, he probably, being an unfinished manuscript, I'm assuming Colin went through and, and kind of cleaned it up and everything. Yeah, so, and he's so. responsible for it being published, really. I mean, um, because Holliday had passed away, so it was, it was a posthumous release, and, and yeah. Wilson had gone out of his way to talk to holiday's widow and um make arrangements with Llewellyn to publish it as part of their SciTech series so so it is available out there um and the price has come down a little bit at least hmm. um that's because i think i bought the most expensive copy and then uh <laughs> see that's the way book reselling works online is somebody if it's a rare book and somebody searches around and they see it sold for one price they'll charge that price right right and it will stay there until uh there are no copies left and then somebody just takes a wild guess and (laughs) posts it for less you know yeah i i I have a few things in my possession where i'm like i should sell these but there's no copies of these and they're not books in this case they're vhs tapes but these things don't exist out there like they're so rare and i'm like i don't even know what they're worth you know um so anyway uh anthony where can people find you um you can find pretty much everything you know whether it be the 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 show black hoodie alchemy or my books um and excerpts to the books dive manual and hunt manual uh 
at divemind.net. It's pretty much a one-stop shop there. You could check out whatever you want. Um, you could catch up with me on Twitter if you want, divemind667. Um, but yeah, uh, thanks to anybody for listening and thank you both for um, yeah, in, uh, in joining me in this conversation and having me on Soraya. This was this is pretty great. It's uh, it's 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 a lot of fun to um, a conversation like this takes a little bit of uh, legwork. Like you can't just yeah. have it with anybody. So yeah. it's yeah. it's very much appreciated. And uh, AP, where can people find you? Oh, uh, you can find me on Twitter. I'm still haunting the Twitters, um, and that's really the only place I'm active on social media. Um, uh, and my blog, of course, apstrange.com. Um, and I've I've been trying to put more up there and, uh, and i've gotten a few actually i've been writing quite a bit this year so there's plenty up there to read you can find that exorcism extravaganza piece on there and uh, a few other things so um yeah check that out nice and again i want to shout out to uh, michael friske who uh provided me with this book so we could do this show yeah salute yeah, all right well Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thanks. I want to give a shout out here to all of my Patreons, because without you, this show would not be possible. And I want to give a special shout out to those who are pledging $10 or more. Illuminati, Greg Ross, Leanne Cherry, Matt in Delaware, Allison Cook, Super Inframan, Indrid Cold, 36 Dingo, Matthew Sproul, Andrew Nichols, Christine, a blue second gen MR2 drifting around a Japanese mountain, Patricia Gayaquinta, Alex Whitcomb, American Rambler, Andrew Maines, Ann Witowski, Barbara Fisher, Beverly Williamson, Big Boy Limina, Charles Davis, Charles in Florida, Land of the Crazy and Communicable, Chris, Craig Cicernos, Craig Parmenter, Diane B, MTK, Eric Todd, History and Coffee, Jay, Jay Otto Bullet, Jack Huntington, James Lindsay, Jim and Sophie, John Mattingly, John Bracken, Carla Mahoney, Kevin, Kevin Shrek, Cool Kitty, Kristen L, Laser Printer Jam, Lauren McLean, Linda, Linz Jackson K, Luke Osborne, MJ Armstrong, Mark Brady, Mr. Weird, Oli Andre Olar, Patricia W., Paul Jeffries, Philosopher of Mirrors, Riker and Stark, Ron Dupre, Sam Sharon, Seed Person One, Stacy Sherwood, Tactical Therapist, Taylor Bell, Thunderboy, Tyler G. Glimstead, Varush K., Vincent Trewell, Will Gebhard, Will Powell, Ren Collier, Annabelle Smith, Caroline Walker, TDT Skunkworks, and Craig Sagastumi. Thank you all so very, very much. There is a lengthy Patreon segment from this show as well for Patreons. I also want to welcome a couple of new patrons, Carrie Blackman and Gonzo Fluffy Buns. Thanks for joining up, and I hope you like the extra content. If you want to become a patron, it's just $3 a month, and you get extra content with almost every show and some extra stuff beyond that occasionally. All right, um, we're going to take you out actually with something from AP Strange. He has an album out under Cowboy Matt Hopewell. It's called Welcome to the Future, and uh, this is New Old School. And I will see you next time.
listening to Where Did the Road Go? This show is made possible in part from our Patreons, and we thank you and everyone listening for helping us continue this exploration of the strange. You can always find everything Where Did the Road Go related at www.wheredidtheroadgo.com. And thank you so much for your support. <laughs>